everyone, I'm Rosanna and this is AFL Obsessed. I am so excited to introduce a very special guest to the pod, someone I look up to and who was also our very first spotlight segment back in episode six, My Australian Dream. And I'm always excited to have another American perspective on the game. And this time we have a truly unique one. I'd like to welcome Richmond President Peggy O'Neill. So welcome, Peggy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Always happy to hear that people are following the sport in the in the U.S. How are you? It's so exciting that AFLW is ongoing and the AFL season is just around the corner. I mean, how are you feeling about the season and the year ahead? Well, our um, AFLW team had their first win on Friday night, uh, and this is our second season in the competition, so it was very exciting, very historic to have our women record their first win for points, as they say, so uh, a lot of um, of happiness and celebration around that. Um, The men had a practice match on Friday, and uh, just seeing some of the new guys, the younger guys who hadn't had a chance to play last year with you know, hubs and that sort of thing. And, and we had a pretty good team that we put together last year. So uh, it was it was fun to watch them. And uh, we have a, a full-blown practice match against Collingwood on Friday night, um, again, in part of the preseason. And 18th of March, whole season kicks off for the men and the women will still be playing. It'll overlap this year for the first time. And we hope that uh, the women get a complete season because last year it was called due to COVID and there wasn't a, a, a you know, a winner, a premier announced for that season. So um, anyway, we're all excited. The idea that um, we're having crowds back, we're going to allow 50,000 people, uh, which is pretty amazing uh, on the 18th of March. And the other big thing we get to do that day is to unfurl our two premiership flags in front yes. of all of them. Yeah, because last year we didn't have crowds at the first game. And so we said, we'll just hold everything over until we can get a lot of our fans back. So uh, if things stay the way they are with the virus here, um, we should be able to get 50000 in, which is a great accomplishment. That's so exciting. I know we were all really disappointed last season with the abbreviated AFLW season. So hopefully, Mm -hmm. you know, this season, everything will go a little bit more smoothly. There is a great interview that you did with Donnie Huss for the fourth and long pod, where you Mm -hmm. talked about your whole journey from West Virginia to Richmond on the other side of the world. So everyone should check that out. Definitely listen if you haven't. I am interested in the fact that you have always been interested in sports. It's practically in your DNA. And you talked about playing gridiron exhibition matches with your intramural (laughs) teams, and you were always the quarterback. So did you immediately become interested in Aussie rules? I mean, what drew you to the game? What was your maybe first exposure to Aussie rules and your initial impressions, if you don't mind sharing with listeners? Well, when I moved to Australia, um, it was August of 89. And um, that was, as I now know, toward the end of the football season. Uh, and the finals in September, the, the grand final came around. I thought, well, what's this? It didn't feel like Super Bowl because that's what I was familiar with and the hype and it was, and that sort of thing. But, um, but I thought, where's every, I looked out on the street on the Saturday, where's everybody gone? And it's like, everybody's at the game or everybody's watching the game. And so um, that ended up being one of those classic matches. And I can't say I understood watching on television exactly everything that was going on, but I knew it was um, significant. And, um, 
And then I, I started to become uh, aware of everybody in Melbourne has a team. And uh, because I like sport, I thought, oh, well, this looks kind of interesting. Um, and I went to my first game, oh, probably 1992 or 93. And I'd listened to it on the radio or they weren't all televised back then. Um, and I thought, this sounds exciting. I wonder what it would be like in person. So uh, a friend of mine said, oh, my wife is a Richmond supporter. And I was living in Richmond. So I thought, well, they'll be my team because that's the name of my suburb. That's uh, I'll go with them. And so I went with her and it was just it was a beautiful autumn afternoon. And um, uh, I remember we lost, Richmond lost to Melbourne, but the ground was so big and it was so exciting. And, uh, and you didn't need to know all the rules to get caught up in just the athleticism of what, was, what you were witnessing. So, um, so I took to it right away. I can't say that I went to every game from day one, but little by little, I got more and more involved and, and it became a real priority to be at the games um, uh, on Saturdays most often back then. And, and I started arranging work so that I would be free to go to games. And, and then I thought, now I'll go interstate and see some of those games. And, and so I, I just got hooked because it is a really wonderful sport to watch. I love how that just kind of gradually um, <laughs> became something. Yeah, sucked um, me into the yeah. <laughs> into becoming a crazy Richmond fan, as they say. Um, well, I hope you won't hold it against me that I'm an Essendon member. Hopefully, you'll still continue. This <laughs> no, no, we always need people. On, <laughs> we need people on the other side, or there wouldn't be a competition. That's so true. Um, so one of the most magical and emotional experiences that I've had in sport is attending the Anzac Day Eve and the Anzac Day Games. And I went in 2019 and the games themselves, obviously, you know, but just actually walking to the G before the game. I know you live within walking distance, you know, when everyone has their scarves on and just that excitement and the level of excitement I really haven't seen here. It's just such a special feeling when you're walking there. And do you feel the same sense of exhilaration now as you did when you initially started watching? I do. If, if anything, it's probably even heightened because um, I know how much the game means to so many of those people and to me too, but I feel a real responsibility in you know, being president and thinking when you see people with the scarf on with you know, Richmond colors, you, I think I have a responsibility to make sure this club keeps going and that, that it's sustainable for the future. There's something about um, a real community and neighborhood feel and of seeing people with scarves on and, and people with you know, opposite teams who walk together. And, and uh, so this, it's sort of accepted that, as I said before, everybody has a team, but it doesn't mean you dislike one another. It just means right. that for his, historic reasons or your family was this or that, that you have another team. So it's a, it's a wonderful feeling. And I still get, you know, butterflies besides the fact teams playing, but butterflies walking there and just seeing families together and hand in hand. And it's just such a, tradition and um, and as the game grows more and more people can go and it was really one of the the sad parts of last year besides it being the virus that um, uh, that rhythm of going to the game and what you do and and it was taken away and and no one in Victoria saw a game live last year I didn't see a game live last year Um, so you start to think 
well, maybe now that it's taken away, you really miss it a lot more. Um, and watching on television was, you know, fine. Um, but, uh, and it was great the sport continued here, but it was uh, not the same as walking with your friends, sitting in the stands and, um, and just seeing all the colors around the stadium. So um, hopefully that will return. But, um, but no, I still get the same exhilaration of going to games as I always had because it all goes back to loving the game. That's so true. I, I agree with you too about um, just the game continuing and the sport continuing, especially for, as you probably saw, sport-starved Americans because we were at an impasse with our sports. And so a lot of Americans were kind of tuning in. But going back to first when you got to Australia back in 1989, I mean, did you miss anything from the U.S. initially after your move there? Oh, I missed a lot of things. <laughs> um, I, I missed... Um, um, you know, 24 hour shopping. <laughs> and even though I was from small towns, I thought um, uh, I missed the kinds of brands of food that you're used to. And you're trying to say, well, what, what is the, the thing that's similar? Uh, so I think right away you lose a bit of confidence and, you know, the, you knew how to do things. And then you move to another country and you're trying to figure out how to do things. Um, I, I missed my family, of course, my friends. Um, when I moved here, there was a, uh, a postal strike on and another, and I was thinking, oh, this would never happen in America. <laughs> that doesn't happen so much anymore, but it was just getting used to a whole new culture. I, and from sport, I, um, yeah, I missed uh, gridiron. Um, I like basketball. I missed that. I, I missed the whole college level sports, which, you know, is what most Americans end up following because you aren't in a city that has a professional team. Um, so I missed not having ready access to watching um, the University of Virginia play basketball, for example, and Virginia Tech play football. Uh, so just those little things. Then over time, when you get more involved in where you are than where you left, um, you, you might feel it, but the, the hole starts to fill in a little bit with the new things that you're doing and the, and the new people that you're meeting. And um, so now I miss, I miss America when I'm here and when I'm there, I miss Australia. So, um, but I don't know when I'll get back there, just given the restrictions on international travel. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I'm always interested in the cultural differences too. Um, so, and I also actually wondered if you did keep up with your alma maters, like March Madness is such a big thing here. So I wondered if you were still following them. So you became a member of Richmond pretty shortly after you saw a game, I imagined. Mm -hmm. um, and so how did you transition from being a member to becoming a board member? Um, well, I'm a lawyer by training and I became a partner in one of the big law firms here. And, um, and because I liked football as well, I was a member and I, and I was continuing down that way. But as I met more people around the club, um, people identified that perhaps I could give some free legal advice <laughs> from time to time to the club. And, um, so I was asked if I would help put together you know, the um, sort of constitution and bylaws for a new fundraiser coterie. They call them coteries here, but it's a group. And so I helped with that and met a lot of people. And then sort of out of the blue, I was contacted by someone in administration at the football club that I didn't know him. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, they're wanting some more free legal advice <laughs> or money or something. But um, uh, he said, oh, there's going to be a vacancy on the board and, you know, we're determined to uh, have it filled by a woman. Would, would you be interested? And, um, and so I had to you know, get permission from my law firm and, um, and they said, well, yes, you can if 
certain restrictions, but, um, and then I had to decide whether I was going to take on the job. That was 2005 and Richmond was in a really dire financial situation and we hadn't won in so long. And it was, it wasn't going to be fun for a very long time. (laughs) Uh, But I thought, well, I'm, I speak to boards a lot. I know about governance. I sort of know how to structure things and um, maybe that'll be what I can contribute. And so I joined the board in November of 2005 and then I was sponsoring, they call sponsoring a player, which really just means you get better seats. And uh, so I, I knew a few people around the club, but I really didn't know anybody on the board when I, when I joined. Wow. So it was, again, it was sort of organic. It was it wasn't quite that linear, but it was years of just going to games and being a fan and understanding a bit more about the game. And, and I did become interested in the business of football. Like, how do you, how do you make money here and how come Richmond can't make any? <laughs> and, and what are the decisions and what, how's the system and you know, salary caps and all that sort of thing. So, um, so anyway, I joined the board in 2005 and, um, and 2013 uh, became president. So the board, the board has the job of electing the president. And they elected me. Oh my gosh. Well, actually, you became the first female president of an AFL club, which, I mean, you've been treading new ground as a female leader. And as a female leader, I guess, what has been the most maybe significant barrier in your career, if you wouldn't mind sharing? Well, um, in the legal side of things, in the sports side of things, um, I say that the law and sport have a lot in common. There aren't a lot of women in senior ranks of either. Um, So you sort of get used to, as a senior lawyer, um, being the only woman in the room negotiating things and working with uh, clients. And um, so as a barrier, I, I found in a way on the law side of things that I found that coming and having to start all over really made me a much better lawyer. So I didn't see that as a barricade. There was a a period, like I mentioned before, about building your confidence up again so that you sort of feel that you know the ropes and you can make a contribution. On the sports side of things, um, I think it says something about Richmond that in 2005, they wanted a woman on the board. Some clubs, uh, I think there were about, oh, four or five clubs that by then had had a woman on the board, a woman. Um, And then some went backwards, some added women after that. Um, So I I thought that Richmond showed it was trying to be progressive. But then, of course, there's a big gap between putting a woman in a job and providing the support and the the change that needs to be made to uh, allow that person to contribute and to do a, a good job. So I, looking back on it, found that it was the assumption around the club was that I knew all the same things that the men knew, even though I was from another country and I was a woman. And and um, and it wasn't like I was excluded. It was nobody thought of me as needing any particular help. <laughs> and um, uh, and I remember early on after the games were over, this the rooms where the families all gather and the players and they go and you know have the showers in, in another room and take and uh, and then they leave from there. And they said well, it was especially important after losses for us to be seen there that we're supporting them and we were losing a lot. Um, but I didn't know where the rooms were, and I thought I haven't stood outside those waiting on autographs all my life like a lot of the men have. So um, so I found. Um, that being willing to to ask for help uh, and people were very willing to give it, but um, it was, it was the first time that I thought 
gee, will this be seen as um, a sign of weakness or, or that they'll think they made a wrong decision? And I look back on it and I think these are all just little add-ons. This wasn't the core job. And, and obviously I, I understood that. And, and um, they were quite open to suggestions. So we ended up with, um, uh, besides people helping find out where the change rooms were, is we ended up with probably, I, I think, early on, the best sort of governance structure in the AFL. So, um, so I can't think of anything that was a real blocker. Um, but, uh, but sometimes I still get frustrated that, that gender is regarded as a, a reason to not advance people, but it still happens all the time. And, and this you know, bias against um, uh, women achieving uh, roles that they could fill. But as we know, sometimes it's, have, somebody has to give up power to um, let a woman assume a role and, and there's still resistance to that from time to time. I didn't run into that, but, um, but I see it happen all the time. Well, I feel like a little bit along those lines too, just in the last year and in the past generation, we've lived through so many firsts historically. So did you maybe aspire to be the first? I know you said it kind of happened naturally as a result of you being more and more involved with the club, but sometimes I feel like with role models, um, in order to be it, you kind of have to see it and you didn't have that in your experience. So kind of what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend last night about that phrase, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And I said, anyone who's a first had to figure out how to be something they couldn't see. And so if we say you can't be what you can't see, then we'll never advance. Um, I guess I, I would just see something that was of interest to me and I would think I'll apply myself uh, to whatever that might be. I, uh, I know in Virginia, I was the first woman president of the Young Lawyers Group. Now, I didn't set out to do that, but over time, I, I think if you find an organization that you want to make a difference to, and you think, well, why should there be a limit on what I do? And and maybe I'm a, a bit, oh, I guess, more cautious. I think, well, you prove yourself that you can do the job, and then they, they can't stop you after that. <laughs> um, and it's it's been mostly, as I said, with law and sport, it's, they've been sort of male-dominated um, industries. But, um, but I, I do think that a critical mass of women means that you aren't the only one and that people can see uh, that different styles, you know, not, as we know, one woman doesn't speak for all women and we're not all the same. And sometimes it was thought, well, if the first didn't succeed for whatever reason, well, we tried women and nobody else will get a chance. And so that's one of the things that I have felt from time to time that, you know, when you're the only woman that you're speaking for all the women in the world and how you uh, are accepted and how you react means somebody else does or doesn't get a chance. And I'd like to think we've moved beyond that, but, um, but often we find out we haven't. And I've heard people have I've heard that they have said to me, well, we tried a woman and that didn't work out. And so we're going to get a man next time. And, uh, and you'd think that that closed-minded way of thinking um, means that uh, they'll fall by the wayside over time because that's not the best um, decision-making model. And it's um, denying access to you know, half the talent. And as we know, if it was based on merit, we wouldn't be half the jobs by now. So, uh, um, so I, I do hear that. But I think that when you find something that matters to you, and you really want to make a contribution, then you go above and beyond and, and you become what you've been up seen before. 
I love that because I always did wonder if you did feel pressure initially to kind of speak on behalf of all women. So, I mean, I guess you kind of spoke to that. Um, Can I ask what maybe the best advice you've ever been given was? I'm just curious. Best advice. Oh, um, I guess there are a couple of things I think about. One that I like was, it wasn't given to me, but it's something I think about a lot. Um, It's an Oscar Wilde quote about, you might as well be yourself because everyone else is taken. And the idea that, um, and I guess that goes to what's now, you know, called authenticity and uh, is it's to know yourself really well. Uh, and then you don't get pushed from side to side or try to please people or you um, understand yourself and what you can contribute. So I, I do think often about knowing yourself. Um, and then I look back to um, some advice I was given as a 16 year old, I guess. Um, and it was true advice. And I was, it was my Girl Scout leader in Grundy, Virginia, way up in the mountains. And, um, and I was thinking about what to do at university because I was my first person in my family to go. And, and I was thinking about what would I do? Cause I, what I really liked was just reading history and reading English. <laughs> and I thought there's not too many things. Happening. And I remember my, um, my Girl Scout leader said, um, you ought to think about getting a profession because you can always take care of yourself. And I thought, oh, self-sufficiency, that's really important to me. I didn't know how important it was. And I I didn't sort of set out on a mission then. But over time, as I was making choices, I kept thinking, well, if I get a credential, I can always find a job. And, um, And I always saw myself as sort of making my way in something. And so I found the law where you get to read and write for a living. Um, and uh, get to help people solve problems. And, um, and I wasn't sure that I, after law school, that I liked the law too much, but I really liked client work. I wasn't crazy about law school, but, um, uh, but when clients came into it and there were real situations and real people, I thought, I think, I think I found the right thing here. I think this is me. Well, I have to ask a little bit more about your presidency. What is something unexpected about being president that most people probably wouldn't know? Well, there's still a perception that the president sort of runs things <laughs> and um, that that isn't the case. Um, the, the president, depending on how different clubs are set up differently, but they basically have a constitution there. Uh, and back in the amateur days, there was one role called the president. Nobody contemplated you'd have your chief executive officer and you'd have this um, you know, management team, they got things done. So like our constitution says, well, the board runs everything. And right away we thought, no, we, so we've set up, you know, proper delegations, the board reserves itself, these things, um, the management team and the CEO, the CEO is the single point of accountability so that we know how things are going and we can ask him and that's his job to make sure that he carries out our instructions. Um, so I, I think there's still this idea. And when I first became president, there was a lot of, sort of things in the press about, well, what does she know about football? And it was like, well, I'm just a fan. But uh, presumption was if you hadn't played, then you couldn't understand how difficult it was going to be. And, and, uh, and I thought, oh, really, that's an old-fashioned notion. That's not the way that we've operated in a very long time. And um, uh, so the fact is I, I sort of chair the board and act as a liaison with um, the CEO and he and I talk pretty much every day um, and we sort of meet up regularly and and if he has something he wants to run by me he'll give me a call so I think people 
you know, sort of assume the president has these overarching powers and uh, they're just a member of the board like anyone else. And the board's a committee and there's one decision, it's a committee decision. And um, so that's the way that we operate. I think that people might not know how much sort of ambassadorial work you're called on to do, which I quite enjoy, you know, meeting um, supporter groups and uh, speaking on behalf of the club at various things. There's meetings at least three a year with the AFL commission and you go on behalf of the club and listen to what they have to say. And I'm on the competition committee, which sort of styles the uh, what's the changes that are going to happen to the rules. And um, so there's a lot of that behind the scenes work that goes on. And, and this is still a voluntary job. So it's not as if, but at the same time, I, I find that to be quite rewarding and, and fun to meet people from other clubs and hear what they're doing. So I think that people are sort of surprised that uh, one, you don't get paid. Second, you do a lot of extra work. And then um, the third is how much, how much fun it is. <laughs> you know, 95% of it's fun and 5% is just terror. You know, it's, <laughs> things go wrong and you just got to accept that they're going to go wrong. And, and, uh, and your job is to work your way through it with the management team and come up with um, a, a good solution and make a good decision. Well, I don't mean to lean into the terror, but um, <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about last season because it was such a singular season. So what maybe was the most challenging part about being president during a pandemic? Yeah, there were lots of, um, you know, well, the whole league was um, just trying to find a way to, to restore uh, games and to play. Um we, of course, I think the toughest thing was trying to figure out um, how we were going to go financially. And and the really hard part was to have to, to stand down staff um, and to determine who that might be. Um, another difficult thing was hubs. I didn't go to the hubs because I had no operational role. But um, instead of being able to sit around a table and talk to one another like the board couldn't meet in person either and you start to realize you get a lot out of just being in a room with people mm -hmm. and and reading them a whole lot better um so i, I think that um, toward the end when we were able to get together in november for a meeting we realized how much we'd missed one another um but i do find it's generally easier to solve problems or to talk things through if you're in the same room but but we did it just like this you know with um cameras and and some people were in a room in Queensland and some people were in their various homes down here um, but I think that the financial implications the um, sort of really sad way that we had to deal with staff through no fault of their own it's, it's it was the same all over the world that uh, people lost jobs just because there was no job there anymore um, and um, and then personally uh, I really miss not being on the ground after we won the grand final. <laughs> right. <laughs> that uh, That's a pretty magic thing to, to see, to look around and see all the people that have worked so hard. Um, but, uh, but no, the pandemic threw up issues for every household, every sporting code. Um, and, uh, and we were very fortunate that we didn't lose any lives in the Richmond sort of family here. And, um, and as we've, slowly started return to something that looks like normal. We've been able to hire back some people. 
That's really great to hear because as you said, it did affect not just the club, but the entire league and a lot of people all over the world were touched by it. Um, I mean, COVID is still around. You know, the vaccine has only just started its rollout, I think, in Australia. So I think it might take some time. Do you still think it's going to be a threat to this season? Do you think the season will look like last year? Uh, I think we have to be ready for it to change at a moment's notice. I think the um, the women's seasons showed that we haven't, as far as I can remember, in the uh, games we've played so far, they haven't been against the opponent that was originally announced and hasn't been on the day that was originally announced. <laughs> so you think, who are we playing and where is it going to be and what time is it going to be? And, um, and for example, have announced our game for next week and it's on Friday at five o'clock. Well, I thought it was going to be Saturday at seven. And the men are playing their practice match on Friday at seven in another location. So you think, well, how can I cover both of them? I'll, I'll find out somewhere to get to the two of them. Um, so uh, so I, I do think that the season, we hope, is a bit more predictable. Um, and we would love to think that crowds in Victoria can come back. Um, but I, I think you just have to be ready for anything to to happen. And as you said, the vaccine has just started its rollout here among health workers and quarantine workers. Um, and we don't have community transmission in the same way as in the States. So that's a bit different. But New Zealand last night went into lockdown for a week and they haven't had any with one case in Auckland. Um, so I think that people are quite careful that once it spreads here, it's going to be really hard to contain. Uh, I think people have generally bought into that's what we need to do. And, and hopefully with the vaccine and, um, and great contact tracing now that uh, we, can, we can keep it under control. But it's, um, it'll be a challenge and uh, we'll just have to remain ready. I, I do think we'll get more games um, played this year than the, the 17 from last year, 18 uh, plus finals. So uh, that would be that would be good. Um, but I think we'll just do whatever is required, whether it's without crowds, whether it's moving somewhere else uh, to get the, the season played and, um, and the women's as well. I, I agree. Just kind of keeping an open mind really, I think is all that you can do. Um, speaking of AFLW though, there's been spectacular growth in the AFLW since it started in 2017. So where do you see growth in that side or where do you maybe see the AFLW game and team in like five to 10 years? Well, I, um, I would hope that in five years that every AFL men's club has um, a women's team. I, would, I just think there's no reason to slow that down because as we've seen, the more opportunities are there for women. It sort of, in my opinion, fast tracks the development of the game for women at a professional level. Um, just in the year and a bit, the 11 games we've played now, um, we don't look like the side from last year. It's because of the experience. And also the, the young women who are being drafted have played um, Australian rules football as juniors now. It's not as if we have just people who are switching from another sport to this because there was that great gap where um, girls and women couldn't play um, and so they went to other sports. And now you can continue to play from your junior years all the way through and we're seeing the skills are just so much better and, um, and having access to elite 
you know, facilities and coaching is the women come along really well. So I, I can just see it becoming more and more popular and, um, and people realizing that it's not meant to be a duplicate of the men's game. It's meant to be its own game. And, uh, and there are some wonderful athletes out there. And so if you think of it that way, I think it'll just be more and more interesting. And people I think I would have thought would never have been you know, great fans of, of women's football talk about it all the time. They really like seeing the development. I think you feel like you're on the ground floor of something being built. And, um, and the clubs that have been in the competition longer have, um, have a bit of an advantage. But I think in the next five years, there'll be a lot of catch up. And uh, I'd love to see all 18 clubs have a women's team. I would love to see that too, personally. And I think really just kind of the reach will be limitless, hopefully, during that time. Well, to kind of switch gears here, there have been incidences of racism in the AFL that have kind of come to light in recent years. At the same time, I know Richmond has had the Corin Gamagee Institute since 2011, kind of providing positive examples and education in that space. Can you talk more about what the Institute does? Yes, um, the Corn Gamagee Institute and the Corn Gamagee means grow and emerge in the local Wenwondry language, and that's where that comes from. Um, that organization is for developing leadership in young Indigenous leaders, ages sort of 14 to 17, and they can go on and, um, and also get certificates in various subjects and then go on to um, a university placement at our, at Swinburne University, which is our naming partner for the Swinburne Center, where, where our ground is, uh, our training ground. So um, that's where it started. There have been about 2,000 Indigenous young people who've come through there. Um, we also have not, I mean, that's sort of the, the cornerstone and, and the beginning, but we've had a long association with Indigenous communities and and very proud of that. And And actually now we have um, 22 seventh graders who go to school down at our administration building and they're wow. from the Northern Territory. It's called the Melbourne Indigenous Transition School. It's 11 boys and 11 girls. And um, a lot of them were are scholarship holders to private schools in Melbourne. And this is a year for them to live in a dormitory very near my house, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and they walk from my neighborhood down to school at um, the Richmond Football Club every day. And last year in COVID, um, they moved to Darwin, uh, which is way up north and had no cases. And most of them are from that part of the world. So there was a, a school set up there so that they could continue. But it's a way of um, getting acclimated to life in a big city and to making some friends and having some friends that when you uh, go to your various schools. Um, so that's been important. We were asked by um, the, Victoria has a, a treaty commissioner to work on treaties with indigenous communities in Victoria. It's the only state in the country. And we were asked by them to promote the treaty enlistment. Indigenous people are the only ones allowed to, to vote um, for a, an assembly that then would go and negotiate the treaties. And so in 2019, it was our um, Dreamtime game, and we wore a treaty on our jumpers. And uh, they've come back to us now and ask us to promote it again, which, which we will do for the Dreamtime game this year. So all of those things, I, I think, are, are meaningful, and it sort of becomes, you hope, uh, part of that who you are. And it's not a, 
uh, a moment of uh, tokenism or we'll dip a toe in the water and see how it goes. It's been, um, well, the Corn Gamage Institute will be 10 years old and it's getting bigger and bigger. And if we had more space, we could do more courses. The demand is quite great. And we're looking at redeveloping um, our administration building and our training ground. And a big part of it will be a new wing for more corn gamagey um, uh, courses. And also um, Bashar Huli, who's a, a, one of our great footballers, um, who has an, an Islamic academy for boys and girls to play football. And his foundation, uh, when he finishes playing, which we hope isn't too soon, but you have to be realistic, is going to be housed at that um, at our training ground as well. So um, we just think that makes us better. It just makes us better to have different kinds of people around and to just be a normal part of the place. And, um, and our players also took great interest, and it was a player-driven thing in Black Lives Matter. And they said, we want to take the knee, and, and they wore black T-shirts and, and warm-ups for the whole season. Uh, they said it's not a one-time thing. We want to, you know, be behind this for, for the foreseeable future. And that wasn't driven by the management or the board. It was the players saying it means something. That's which I think shows that they feel they can express what's important to them. So I could go on forever. I'm <laughs> no, very, I'm very I, proud. I'm very yeah. proud of what they do. Yeah, I'm really just so grateful for that diversity and just having that structure in place as a support system, really, you know, um, now and in future. I think that that's so important. So it kind of made me emotional when I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, we found that uh, lots of times, and we weren't always our best in the past, um, but helping, you know, employees from different backgrounds settle in is the more people that you have from those different backgrounds, they can tell you what it takes. And so I find that lots of uh, decisions get made in the right way because someone will say, I'll, I'll tell you, this is what's important to us and this is what we want to do. And, and we go, well, great. We wouldn't have known that had you not been here to help us. So I think all of this is just, like I said, makes us a better place. And it kind of just grows everything in like a direction that I just really hope that American sports will kind of follow too. So, well, <laughs> I just have one final question for you. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, aside from the premierships, which are enormous achievements for the club, I mean, what are some of the biggest successes and milestones, you know, the club has achieved during your time as president? Well, we were uh, the first club and still the only one with over 100,000 members. And, uh, and we were making record memberships even before we started winning premierships. Um, we had seven straight years of increase, increase, increase in record membership, and we hadn't won anything, mm-hmm. which I think shows that um, the communications to, to fans made them feel part of something happening. And, and, um, and I have said several times that while you're waiting to win, you got to make people proud about what you're doing. And so the things that we do in the community, and we've um, worked with uh, Alana Madeline Foundation against bullying against for children and, and uh, e-safety and all those sorts of things that some people sign up. We have a membership called the Alana Madeline, and we play around for them. And these are two young girls who were killed in gun violence um, 25 years ago now. And, um, and, some, and we have a membership that if you sign up, all of to go to that round, all the money goes to that foundation. And 5% of our profits from our merchandise all go to the Lawn Madden Foundation. 
So anyway, that's a way of saying that, that we were doing something that made people want to be part of us and that the silverware was important, but it was almost secondary because there was no return um, except to feel good about what the club was doing. That was important. Um, and it sounds boring, but what was really important is, is, is we had to share our training ground with cricket. And here in Australia, they usually put a big cricket pitch in the middle of the ground and it's played in the summer, which meant we had no ground to train on. So when we were finally, um, and our CEO and CFO spent a couple of years negotiating this, we finally found a home for cricket, a big new home in another place, and got our own ground and um, turned over all the dirt, and reshaped it. And I said, just seeing that new dirt was <laughs> a highlight because without that, we wouldn't have had our own training ground. We wouldn't have had a, our second side. We wouldn't have had our women's side. We wouldn't have, so that was really um, just fundamental to us being able to move forward. Um, so that made me feel that that was an important thing that we did. And like you said, premierships are pretty fantastic, but, um, uh, but I think just trying to live what we, what we say, our, our purpose is connecting to um, thrive and win and connections a big thing, whether it's with our fans or each other and our team say all the time about connection and um, and we spend a lot of time thinking about what our purpose is. And I think, you know, once you know your purpose, you really can just get on with business and, and we reinforce it all the time. And and the connection we think leads to thriving and that's thriving as individuals. And then if you've connected and you're thriving, then the winning takes care of itself. So that's why winning is the last thing. And it's like winning financially, uh, winning on the ground, um, but anyway, so we, we talk a lot about connecting to thrive and win. And it's a, it's a unique place when everybody knows what our purpose is. And I think that's what drives a lot of wonderful results we've seen lately. I honestly love to hear. And I know we'll all be watching how Richmond does this year. I know Richmond will be a big part of viewing for everyone <laughs> as you go for the fourth <laughs> premiership in five years, which would put you right up there with some of the best teams I think ever in the game. But thank you so much for doing this, Peggy. It was such an honor to speak to you and to talk to you about the Tigers, but also just about the game in general. So thank you so much for doing the interview. <laughs> You're welcome. Go Tigers. Thanks for hanging, everyone. Stay safe and healthy. Check on your friends and neighbors. We'll get through this like footy. I'm virtually hugging you and we'll talk footy soon.